Hey, to all the real estate professionals out there, I want to let you know The Buyer's Mind is sponsored by Homebridge Financial. Homebridge loan officers are experts in new home financing, and they bring sales ideas and strategies and market intelligence and programs that will help sell homes. To learn more about that, go to builder.homebridge.com. Homebridge Financial, home financing made easy. How goal-driven is your buyer? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. Let's talk about it today on The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse-engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. Well, welcome, everyone, once again to The Buyer's Mind, the podcast where we seek to understand the way that our customer makes purchase decisions, and that's what we're going to get into today. If we know the way that our buyer buys, we can reverse-engineer our sales presentation, make it easy for them to do just that. And today, we're going to look at buying as a goal activity. That is, that when a customer is out shopping, they have a goal in mind. Now, that goal might be conscious or not conscious, but they are goal-driven nonetheless. Joined, as always, by our show producer, Paul Murphy. Murph, when you're out shopping, do you think of it in terms of, you know, you want to buy uh, you know, a pair of shoes or uh, whatever it is, do you think of it in those terms, like, I'm out to accomplish a goal? Well, I, I've always heard, you know, men and women shop a little bit differently. Uh, men go in, hunt, kill, get in, get out. Uh, you know, women <laughs> tend to browse a little bit more. Uh, yeah. And I think... There's some truth to that, um, and I tend to go in with the idea of killing, getting it as what I want, and getting yeah. out. Yeah, it's interesting, and and I think part of that might be a gender thing, but but that's probably more societal. I think this is a personality thing. Like for me, window shopping just does nothing for me, right? Right? If I'm if I'm gonna go out, what people call shoppertainment, it doesn't strike a chord for me. So I'm with you. You know, when I'm out there, it's I've got a goal in mind. I want to go out. I want to buy this. Now I may not be clear on it. I might say I need a pair of pants, but uh, I, I don't know. Ex- may not know exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, but even there, uh, I would rather spend as little time as possible. But that still falls under the category of goal achievement. I think where it finds it interesting is when we get into those non-conscious goals. So, I don't know, Murph, are you ever, uh, uh, I don't know, I call, use the term victim, but do you ever find yourself doing a little impulse purchasing? Well, especially when you're in the auto parts store and uh, you're noodling around and you're like, oh, what's that tool do? Uh, yeah, right. That looks interesting. I, I've never had one of those. I need that. Or for me in a hockey supply store, it's like, ooh, stick wax. I don't know what stick wax is. I don't know what it does, but they sell it and maybe I need it. Maybe that will help me to skate better if I have some sort of wax on my stick. Uh, but I think that this is what happens when we're out there as consumers. We oftentimes do not understand ourselves as well as we think we do. And that's true for your customers as well. We go in with this inflated sense of how in tune we are with our own psyche, with our own conscious, with our own emotions. And our guest today is going to turn that on its head. We're going to talk today to Professor Anthony Salerno on the subject of goals and goal achievement in the buying process. It's a really, really interesting conversation with a really, really interesting guy. Let's get started. 
Well, we're really excited to have on the program Professor Anthony Salerno. He's the Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Cincinnati. His dissertation was on emotions as accelerants and retardants of goal pursuit. And today we're going to look at that goal that we call buying and how that applies all the way down into what our home buyers are are thinking about as they're in the process of making a purchase decision. So, uh, Professor Salerno, or if I could call you Tony, if that's acceptable to you, welcome to The Buyer's Mind. Great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Excited to be on. And you are calling in from where? What part of the country? You're, you're, you're in Cincinnati, the greater Cincinnati area now? Yep. I'm, I'm just in Cincinnati, about yeah. uh, like 10 minutes from downtown. Tell us about your journey that led you uh, in the direction of a PhD and then very specifically that got you more centrally focused on the role of emotion in goal pursuit. Uh, Okay, so that's somewhat of a random serendipitous story, but uh, (laughs) I um, so I I did my schooling at the University of Miami in Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, as an undergraduate, I knew I wanted to, to major in psychology. And so I I did a lot of work initially in one of the labs there uh, as a research assistant. And it was a very heavy focus on sort of clinical psychology. So things like helping people with um, uh, depression and social social anxiety and just how regulating our emotions can help with those sorts of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't actually until my last year in undergrad that I took by chance uh, a consumer behavior class you know, I, I really enjoyed the class and started thinking to myself, you know, this is just psychology in a business setting. Right. So I, I met with my professor of that class just to ask him, you know, what what is this uh, field of consumer behavior? And he told me a little bit about it. And he wound up actually being my um, academic advisor in grad school. Mm. Um, so somewhat from, from from just taking that class, I kind of right. um, decided to shift shift gears. It was interesting. A lot of college students decide, well, I got to declare a major. What am I going to declare? Well, psychology. How do people think? That sounds interesting. And then they get into it and they start looking at things like, you know, uh, abnormal psychology and the counseling aspect and everything else. And they go, OK, maybe this isn't exactly what I was bargaining for. But some people like you really ride that. Is Do you think there's just that innate sense of saying, I want to understand why we do what we do? How much of your life is motivated just by understanding the rationales, the reasons, the actions and behaviors that, that people take part in? Totally. I, I think that's uh, kind of a fundamental motivation of people who say that in in college. Um, I think what a lot of people maybe don't realize, at least initially, myself included, is that can be applied and used in so many different settings, you know? So like for me, when I took this consumer behavior class, I knew I was always interested in our emotions and how it influenced behavior. But up until that point, I didn't really see how that could play out in consumer settings, you know, when it comes to like uh, purchasing decisions and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it, it, I think that happens for a lot of people, actually, where it starts with that fundamental interest. And then hopefully with experience, you can kind of see it materialize in different ways. You know, it's interesting as we look at this and we study how people make decisions. And even when we look at ourselves and how we make decisions. And if I were to totally butcher a quote by Daniel Kahneman, I, I don't remember exactly how he had said it, but he, essentially what he said was that one of the great fallacies of man is that he thinks he understands himself. And so as we look at the decisions that we make, so much of this non-conscious is non-conscious. And I, I think that's what I want to get into. I learned about your work. I was looking at a white paper about this idea of goal pursuit 
and particularly non-conscious goals. So define, first of all, what you mean by a non-conscious goal, and does a purchase decision even qualify under that banner of non-conscious goal in that it's it's not particularly well-defined? So if we look at you know window shopping or impulse purchasing, I, I would assume that falls under the category of non-conscious goals. Give us a little update and background into what a non-conscious goal might be. Sure. So um, let me let me just quickly preface this by saying that there's um, you know a lack of consensus even in the academic literature about one, what non-conscious goals are. But okay. um, as far as my definition, I like to think of it as a behavior that's goal-driven, but that we're not uh, necessarily aware of as being goal-driven. And so to to kind of go to your second question, um, you know, I'd agree that a purchase decision could be from a non-conscious goal and in in the sense that it's maybe not as well defined, Uh, maybe as an example to sort of differentiate a non-conscious versus a conscious goal. I can kind of give an example. Sure. Um, so if we imagine two people who walk into a grocery store with the goal of eating healthy, you know, you might have one person who was very deliberate and had this goal in mind from the get-go. You know, he came into the grocery store with a shopping list in hand, you know, made an effort to only shop for foods that will help facilitate this good health. Uh, and maybe as a result of that, they bought a head of broccoli. Uh, this person would be said to have a conscious health goal. Now, conversely, a second person walks into the grocery store and at the automatic front door as it opens up, maybe she sees a prominent display board that says, eat healthy today. You know, this person may have only taken a passing glance at that message, but nevertheless, it can remain salient uh, sort of in the background of her mind and might actually sort of nudge her towards the perimeter of the grocery store where, you know, the fruits and veggies are and might also wind up buying a head of broccoli. And so mm-hmm. in this latter case, that would be said to be a non-conscious health goal where the purchase was goal driven, but they just weren't aware of it being due to this display board that they saw. So if we're thinking about, you know, the writings of Richard Thaler and the the book Nudge, that's what you're talking about right there. It's right. It's that idea of, uh, I don't, I may not even be aware of what I'm doing. Uh, It's sort of like, not to be vulgar about this, but the, the idea of the little icon of, I've seen it as a fly in a urinal uh, to try and keep the bathrooms (laughs) clean, right? It's the idea of that, that would be a non-conscious goal, right? Yeah, that would be kind of call it nudges where you know it's it's these sort of passive guiding cues that we might use for for our behavior the way i like to explain it to my students uh, i teach advertising you know if you think about how all of this applies to our purchasing decisions you know just we as consumers see on average over 5000 ads a day mm-hmm. and so you know if we were to think about trying to integrate all this information into what we do um, every time we made a purchase, it'd just be like computationally impossible. Sure. Um, so, so what winds up happening, uh, like you said, is a lot of this is just sort of non-conscious or passive. We don't acknowledge that, right? We 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 think that when we are shopping, that that we are very very logic driven, and and your argument would be no, not not really. Exactly. You know, so there's been a lot of studies on non-conscious goal pursuit where mm-hmm. you'll have some manipulation. Uh, where you'll make a goal salient just below the the threshold of explicit conscious thinking. Mm -hmm. And you find that it influences their choices in a sort of goal congruent way. And then typically at the end of these studies, they'll have what's called a debriefing where you just ask them, you know, where are your choices guided by this particular goal? 
Mm-hmm. And people just always say no. You know, it, there's just that that lack of a, a awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, it it does guide our behavior when you look at the results. So if I'm selling a car to a, a mom with kids, and and even as I just casually mentioned, I got to tell you, you know, moms with kids have really appreciated this feature. Suddenly, that feature becomes much more important. It can, it can, um, particularly if you know that salesman has developed a, a rapport with that customer. Sure, you know yeah. they could sort of assign a higher um, value of that statement, mm-hmm. and yeah, it could it could have an influence. Define goal activation and goal deactivation. Sure. So uh, goal activation is when a particular motivation of ours is accessible and has the potential to influence our thoughts and behaviors. Um, That can be, you know, sort of a more kind of conscious uh, process or non-conscious, going back to that example I gave before. Mm -hmm. um, Goal deactivation would be when that particular motivation is no longer accessible. Um, and so maybe a, a way of thinking about it is, have you ever seen a soundboard for musicians in a recording studio? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can think of our minds almost as like a soundboard where each slider uh, could represent a particular goal. And then we have uh, the ability to sort of adjust its levels of activation to be higher or lower. And so, you know, activating is turning it up. Deactivating is turning it down. Can you give us an example? Uh, just if, if you're, you're watching a consumer, you're seeing consumer behavior. Give us an example of goal activation and goal deactivation. Okay. So uh, if we think about goals that are activated initially, it could be a a simple case where someone's in the market for a new home. Mm -hmm. um, And and initially, you know, that goal is active. Um, One of the interesting things about just sort of goal activation and deactivation is it, it, Goals can become stronger or weaker um, depending on certain situational factors. So going back to this example, let's say someone buys a house. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, this person may have a relatively low level of activation. Uh, fast forward a few months, though, uh, and if this goal is still unfulfilled, maybe because the person hasn't quite found the right house or maybe they've been out- outbid several times, uh, that goal could actually become much stronger as the person becomes more and more motivated to achieve the goal. Uh, and then whenever they actually do finally get the right home, they do uh, get the bid, uh, that goal would be accomplished and, and it would be deactivated so that people would be freed up um, in their resources to pursue other alternative goals. But if you're using that example, if I'm looking for a home and I've got high goal activation because there's something wrong with the situation I'm in right now. We just figured out, you know, we found out we're having kids or it's our job relocation or whatever it is. So that goal activation is high. The longer I go into this process of shopping for a home, the higher that goal activation gets because I'm starting to get a little bit desperate. But suppose that someone is optional on that, that they don't have to move, that they have a mild dissatisfaction in the home that they're in right now. And now as they're pursuing they get detached from the initial emotional impulse. Would that be an example of a goal deceleration or deactivation? Uh, yes, yes, it could. Um, so what you're kind of talking about here is is sort of a, an, an additional factor that would t- determine whether someone with time either becomes frustrated without 
uh, being able to achieve this goal or, or does not in, in the case you're talking about. And, and that would kind of go back to the perceived value or, or importance of that goal. You know, so when it's really important that I, I get this fulfilled, it becomes stronger over time. And, and that actually is called goal frustration. But in cases where it's of low importance, um, what could happen over time is it sort of deactivates, falls back into the, the background, so to speak, uh, freeing us up to, to pursue other goals that maybe are more manageable in terms of actually making progress on at this moment in time. You use the term goal frustration. I've, I've never heard that phrase before, goal frustration. Is that a thing? in psychological circles? Yeah, yeah. So that's a term that's been used before. And it's basically uh, just referring to this instance where when you have an initial goal that is not fulfilled over time, uh, pr again, provided with this caveat that it's it's one that's important to people, mm -hmm. it, it actually does become stronger over time as a result of, of this frustration from not fulfilling that goal. But then it would stand a reason that I don't you know you're the professor on this one, but it would stand a reason in my mind uh, that is if it's something I have to buy. My car was totaled. I have to buy a car. But if it's an optional decision, I, I'm just sort of casually looking and I can't find what I'm looking for. That goal frustration would lead to a deactivation of the process. I might just step aside altogether. Yeah, yeah. So I, there, there are a number of factors that can kind of determine when an unfulfilled goal over time becomes more frustrated or more important or, or can kind of lose its, its, its activation. So I, mm -hmm. I was talking about goal importance as one example. This example you were just talking about now, I, I suppose you could say the the need for it is that fair to say you know sure, that yeah, that, right. that could also be another factor where it would sort of lose its sense of urgency with time how much is the purchase decision based on conscious factors versus non-conscious factors okay so uh i feel like we could spend two days talking about this right. one but yeah, um yeah, you know yeah. uh there there's there's a ton of research that's looked at this there's a number of uh, factors that have been identified that help us uh, sort of determine when people are more likely to make purchase decisions consciously or non-consciously. And so maybe what I could do is give a few that uh, hopefully will be relevant from a, a sales perspective. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you think about one, as an example, um, certain consumer characteristics can determine this. So I know I've heard, uh, you know, just listening to a, to a few of your episodes, you've discussed on your show before the difference between maximizers and satisficers, mm -hmm. where the former is trying to make the absolute best decision possible. The latter is uh, simply trying to find an acceptable solution, even if it's not the best. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maximizers are very much guided by conscious factors in their decision making, whereas satisficers are more prone to using uh, non-conscious factors. You know, so if you can know uh, this about your customer, you know, what, what, what type of decision maker they are, you can at least help to anticipate what sort of uh, purchasing mindset he or she might be in. Mm -hmm. so that'd, be, that'd be one example. Uh, just one a little uh, side note on that, then. One of the things that we see about 
satisficers versus maximizers is that satisficers are ultimately much happier in their purchase. They they report a higher level of satisfaction with their purchase, at least according to Barry Schwartz, who we had on the podcast here. Uh, is that because the decision was made much more out of the non-conscious following my gut and I just, hey, I trust my gut. I feel good about this. So regardless of what the purchase is or the process, uh, it, it was it was a not more of a non-conscious decision, but it was also a non-conscious feeling that said, I'm, I've chosen to feel good about this. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I, I definitely think that is um, one reason for, for why that uh, effect's been shown. Um, I, I think kind of related to that, another potential reason for that could be that, um, you know, by and large with a lot of our decisions, we might overweight the importance of getting the best possible choice for things or, or sort of this idea that there's one solution and that is the absolute best solution. I feel like more often than not, that statement is not true. And, and so, you know, if you think about um, a satisficer who's finding, you know, pretty good solution, even if it's not the best, you could do that with a lot less effort and, and agonizing over everything that went into that choice. And as a result, I, I think that that could also be what leads to them feeling uh, more satisfied. All right. So my wife is not going to be happy when she hears this episode. And I say, I told you so, my dear. Uh, <laughs> so I always, always find that interesting when we, when I see, when I identify people, even in my own sales background, where you have two decision makers, one's a satisfizer and one's a maximizer. And it's, uh, it's always interesting to watch that happen. Uh, when we look at goal pursuit and how we trigger it and how we sustain it, talk a little bit about the role of emotion in goal pursuit. How, how does that emotion trigger it? How does that emotion sustain it? There's been research on this where, you know, we could look at specific emotions that could have different effects on on triggering and sustaining goal pursuit. But, you know, just, just for the sake of simplicity, maybe we could do uh, just thinking about emotions more broadly as someone feeling good or bad. Mm. Um and if we think about it that way, um, we know from some research that how a good or bad mood influences our goal pursuit actually depends on what stage of a goal a person is at. So if we just start with your first question of how emotions play a role in triggering goal pursuit, mm -hmm. this would be when someone is basically just beginning their goal. Um, and so when a person's feeling good about that goal, um, perhaps from some early positive feedback, research has shown that uh, this this good feeling actually encourages the person to keep at it, to keep working at their goal. Um, the opposite is true when people are feeling bad, where if they uh, just start out and they get some negative feedback where they're not doing as well as they were hoping, these negative feelings actually um, more often than not encourage people to abandon the goal altogether. Mm -hmm. um, conversely, though, when you think about someone who's been at a goal for some time and is um, nearing the point of attainment, we actually find uh, from, from, from prior work that the uh, emotions have the opposite effect. So when people get late stage positive feedback about a goal, uh, sometimes they tend to take their foot off the pedal rather than finishing strong. And so this is called coasting 
where, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've experienced that before. I, I can certainly say I have where, you know, things feel like they're going good. Okay. I can kind of um, take my eye off this for a moment and, and kind of look at other things. Um, whereas when people get negative feedback towards their goal in the later stages, they think, oh man, you know, I, I better get serious about this, actually tend to be more made, motivated than those uh, feeling good about the goal. Really interesting. Uh, all right. So I'm going to throw you a curveball right now and ask you to play not uh, Professor Salerno. I'm going to ask you to play marriage and family uh, counselor here for just a moment. So um, my wife and I, uh, we had a, a dog who we lost at age 18. So life uh, was, was, she didn't get cheated out of life at all last year. And now we're in this deliberation. Do we want to get another dog? And uh, uh, it's a really interesting dynamic because my wife is definitely wants to get another dog. She's, she's pressing me on that. I'm looking at my stage in life right now and saying, do we really need a dog? Now, on top of that, she's a maximizer. I'm a satisficer. So on the one hand, I look at it and I go, she's all in. So she's spending all of this time on the internet trying to find the perfect dog. Well, the problem is she can't find the perfect dog because she's a maximizer. And so I'm wondering now if she's going to see her emotion wane and whether she's going to get into that little bit of coasting here. Uh, is is this applicable to what we're talking about right now, or is this just Jeff having a cathartic moment? <laughs> um, I, I, I think I could see how um, that might play in. So there's this research looking at the relationship between anticipated regret and choice deferral. Mm-hmm. So anticipated regret is just when you uh, people believe that the choice they make now is one that they'll regret in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, they think I'm I'm going to regret this for just making a wrong or a suboptimal choice. And then choice deferral is when someone says, you know what, I'm not confident I can make the right choice here, so I'm just going to put off making any choice at all. Mm-hmm. Um, research has shown that uh, anticipated regret is a predictor of um, choice deferral. And there's, uh, you know, two forces in particular that, that can really um, play a role in, in creating anticipated regret. Um, one is the number of options. So um, when people are providing a ton of options to consider for purchasing, there's just too much information to process and people are less confident in their ability to make a decent choice and then less satisfied as well. So here people are more likely to say, you know, uh, you know what the hell with it uh, Mm -hmm. and, and just defer their choice. So the implication from that would be to just limit the number of options you provide to a customer to kind of keep it simple. And and this is something that we teach sales professionals on a regular basis, that in the customer's mind, easy equals right or simple equals right. And, and a confused mind tends to say no. And now this is really the science behind it, right? Because when I have too many component parts, then any one of those component parts that you're throwing at me could trigger that anticipated regret and therefore choice deferral. Or did I get that wrong? No, that's exactly right. Exactly right. When there's just so many options, people, um, uh, it, it, the, the sheer number of options that are available just raise that idea that, wow, you know, there's, there's a potential here for me to, to make the wrong, the wrong choice. And so, yeah, that regret, that anticipated regret is, is what tends to um, lead to choice deferral. 
Uh, listen, we're, we're just about out of time. I, I know our audience is thinking right now, where were you when we were in college? Because you were the professor that we wanted to have. It's uh, just really, really interesting stuff and, and very, uh, very approachable. Uh, but before we let you go, as is our tradition here on uh, The Buyer's Mind, we're going to put you on the hot seat, learn about you a little bit, rapid fire questions, rapid fire answers. You ready? Sure. Here we go. Your very first job was what? Newspaper uh, delivery boy. Of course. There you go. Back in the day. Uh, yeah, if, if, if you're under 30, uh, Google it. We used to deliver newspapers on our bikes. Um, an, an album or artist from your youth that you listen to over and over again. Oh, boy. I would probably have to say Tom Petty's greatest hits album. Sure. Yeah, classic. Uh, the most beautiful place you've ever stood. Cliffs of Moore in Ireland. Oh, love it. Love it. Stunning. Yeah. 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 Uh, any book that you read early in life that made a profound impact on the rest of your life? Oh, gosh. Um, Ishmael. That was that was one that uh, I read from from a while ago and really stuck with me. Cool. Uh, a movie you've seen multiple times, but you can't help it when it comes on. You just have to watch it. Um, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> <laughs> we just learned a little bit more about you. And then finally, uh, your first celebrity crush. Boy, first celebrity crush. I guess I would have to say uh, Britney Spears. Oh, there you go. Love it. Solid choice. Solid choice. You're off the hot seat. Uh, Dr. Sonoro, Tony, thank you so very much. It was really, really insightful. Great stuff. Very, as I say, very approachable. And I think it's going to make us uh, better at what it is we do in serving our customers. Thanks for being on The Buyer's Mind. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right, Murph. Well, there you go. Uh, you got guys like Professor Anthony Salerno on there, and you just... You just got to love the idea that we take things that are very psychologically complex and break them down into things that are pretty, pretty easy to understand. And more importantly, easy to apply to how we deal with our own customers. What, what stuck out at you in that conversation? Well, you know, the idea of uh, the difference between uh, somebody who's not confident and somebody who has anticipated regret, right? Uh, the idea being that if you have anticipated regret, you're not going to make the decision because you know you're going to mess it up, as opposed to somebody who's just not confident, who just decides, you know, I don't have enough information, I'm going to postpone it. Uh, I, uh, completely, absolutely, we, we see that anticipated regret leading to that choice deferral. I also love the conversation on goal frustration and the idea that it, when that initial goal is not fulfilled, it becomes stronger. But if we are not careful, what happens? We we start to, as he called it, coast. We get into that coasting mode, and I and I think about this idea that that goal frustration can really send a customer in two different directions. You're like one is that it makes them more urgent to make a decision because they need to solve their problem. But the second is, if the problem is not perceived as being that great in the first place, then goal frustration is going to cause them to say, ah, forget it. I'll just step back off to the sidelines. And I'm thinking back all the way to 2010, right at the height of the financial crisis. And I put, I actually put an offer in, was in contract with Bank of America to purchase a home that was uh, owned by the bank at that point. And and uh, I remember I put in the offer, it got accepted. That was the goal, to try and pick up some investment property at a time when the market was was really, really down. And the process was so difficult. Of course, all of the banks, not just Bank of America, but all the banks, were they, they were dealing with unprecedented situations. And so what's happening is they're making up the rules as they're going along. And it got so frustrating that eventually I just bailed on the thing. I just looked at it and said, you people have no idea what you're doing. Now, was that the right decision? Well, probably not. 
not? Because when I look at the price that I was going to get at that house, get that house for, and and what I what it would be worth today, probably would have been wise to stay with it. But that's an ideal, an example of gold frustration. I didn't need to buy the home, and so then what happened? I didn't perceive enough of an impulse of a dissatisfaction, and so I bailed because of gold frustration. And to me, all of this speaks to you as sales professionals to say, do you really understand why your customer is there in the first place? That is, how deeply do you understand the frustration, the emotional aspects of their dissatisfaction that would put them into that process at all? Because if you don't understand that, you're really behind the eight ball on this one. You're going to have a very, very difficult time getting them to stay with it. I just love this idea that that our customers are not simply making a decision. They are in goal achievement mode. And our job is to learn what that goal achievement is, learn why it is there in the first place, and then sustain that emotional energy such that it'll move us past that anticipated regret or that dreaded choice deferral. Keep the emotion high. I don't mean you have to be sappy and syrupy or coming out of your skin, but we need to keep this positive. We need to make sure that that customer is feeling good about their decision. And as they do that, they move forward. They buy what they really need to buy to make their life better. That's when you improve their life. That's when you change their world. 